0: Good morning. Today's scripture comes from Nahum chapter 2, and you can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen. The scatter has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off her slave girls lamenting moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins, all faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? the feeding of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lioness. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, let's pray. Father, we
1: we come to you again um, in a very difficult text, yet we praise you that, that you choose to reveal the entirety of your character, your justice, um, your desire to destroy the sin that desires to destroy us. And Lord, we uh, just pray that you would Give us a greater view of you and your nature. Lord, move our hearts to worship and humble us that we might run to find our stronghold and our refuge in you. Lord, we also wanna lift up and we pray for the, the gatherings of the Short North Campus. Um, Lord, we praise you, Lord, that your, your, your gospel is being proclaimed all over the city. Um, and, and we just ache to, to hear your word and respond in grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You guys can have a seat. Well, yeah, so it's another intense week. Um, reading that, you might have thought maybe things would get a bit better after last week, but no, we're still in Nahum. It's still gonna be an intense word and we're still gonna be pushing in to seek and know um, our Savior, our God. So, we're six weeks into this sermon series called Redemption Songs. If you're just now joining us, um, we've been tracing uh, a, really a study of, of the Old Testament through two books, Jonah and Nahum. And in these two books, we see God's radical, unrelenting, loving pursuit of sinners, while at the same time seeing his wrath and his desire to destroy sin. We saw in, in the book of Jonah, we saw his, his loving pursuit of an of arrogant, sinful prophet named Jonah, who had done all the right things, did all the religious requirements, yet was arrogantly running from God. And at the same time, in, in the book of Jonah, we saw God's loving pursuit of, of, of the city of Nineveh, of people who were more violent and evil and rebellious than anyone else on earth. And we saw God lovingly and patiently pursuing them to draw them back to repentance. And then now here we are in the book of Nahum and we see a, another word spoken to the same city of Nineveh and, and yet it's a, it's a very different tone. It's one of, of burden and of destruction on a city that continued to pursue evil and hatred and opposition to God. And so... This book really is about the most intense book in all of scripture, dealing with God's wrath on sin. And, he, and we, we really see this, this complex nature of God, that he absolutely and fully hates sin without a single moment's compromise of his justice, while at the same moment he passionately and radically loves sinners. And we see both of those things coming together and one beautiful and perfect and holy nature of God. And so here in chapter two, we see, we really see in specific what we saw last week in general. And what I mean by that is last week we saw really God's nature revealed. We saw his his nature on sin in general, on on the sin of Nineveh, on our sin, and on the sin that's gonna happen a hundred years from now. We saw God's wrath on sin in general, his, his, his perfect and holy nature, that he was not gonna be satisfied for a moment while sin still reigned and sought to destroy his people. And then this week, we see really in specific, what last week we saw in general, we see it in specific for the city of Nineveh. We see his specific wrath for a people who was in rebellion and opposition to him. And now we've heard a lot about Nineveh over the past really month and a half or so. Um, but I want to dig a bit deeper into the history and the actual context of what was happening. Because Nineveh was actually the capital city of the nation of Assyria. It was the largest superpower in its day. Massive. The most threatening nation of, in the entire world. And, and, and the nation of Assyria had oppressed and had tormented the nation of Israel for over 200 years by the time the book of Nahum was written. And so hopefully this is going to get us a bit more context as to what is actually going on between God and Nineveh and God and his people in Judah. So Nahum was written around 650 B.C. And so back, way back in about 853 B.C., Assyria and Israel were fir- first met in battle and Assyria defeated the, Israeli, the Israel army um, at, a, at a place called Karkar defeated them, and that really marked the first moment when Assyria was rising as a power and Israel was crumbling as a nation. And so in that first battle, we then saw about over the next hundred years, Assyria grow in power and grow in might. And then one by one, they started brutally destroying nation after nation after nation that surrounded Israel. They, 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 They literally just went in and completely devoured nations. Plundering all of their wealth, leading away their entire population in captivity, oftentimes to never be heard from again. And so during this hundred-year period where Assyria was rising in power, actually Israel had had a brief moment of blessing. Because Assyria was destroying all of Israel's other enemies, And so there was a short period where Israel actually got to reclaim land and reclaim cities and reclaim areas that were taken from them by their other enemies. And if you remember way back in chapter one of Jonah, it was in that period that Jonah was a prophet. It was in that period where Jonah actually told the king of Israel to to build their, their defenses up, to reclaim land. And he had this amazing blessing of actually being able to prophesy good news for the nation of Israel which is a very, very rare thing for a prophet. And so as they reclaimed land and, got, and the nation of Assyria was destroying all the nations around them, it was really, the writing was on the wall. And that was why, remember, Jonah hated the idea of going to Nineveh to preach and to warn them of their destruction. Remember, we saw Jonah's extreme, ethnocentric, racist heart As he desired, he did not want to warn Nineveh of the coming destruction. He wanted them to stay in their sin, to stay in their rebellion so God would destroy them. And so it was with that, when he was told to go to Nineveh, he did what? He went the opposite direction and he ran from the call of the Lord. Yet God chased him down, drew him there, and ultimately Jonah ended up preaching to Nineveh and the entire city of Nineveh repented. And Jonah was furious. And he was furious because he knew as long as Nineveh exists, Israel is not going to be safe. And it was that that burden actually proved to be right. Because not long after he preached, Nineveh, Nineveh and the nation of Assyria invaded northern Israel, where Jonah was from. You see, while their repentance was true when he preached, It wasn't long-lasting. It it didn't follow generation after generation. The generation that repented and turned to God in Nineveh didn't teach the ways of God to the people that followed them. And so once the people who repented died off, Nineveh and Assyria returned to greater evil and greater destruction than ever before. We actually have um, writings from the kings of Assyria that we still have today where they were bragging and boasting about how much they could torture their captives, how intensely they could mutilate the dead, how much they could completely destroy a city. And it became something that, that king after king after king tried to outdo the kings that came before him with how evil and how thoroughly they could destroy the nation surrounding them. And so it was... In 745, that Assyria first invaded northern Israel. They first invaded them and, and ruled over them like a, like a vassal kingdom where the, the northern Israelites had to pay tribute to the king of, of Assyria. And then after about 20-some years of that, in 721, they just said, all right, let's just completely destroy them. And they invaded and they sieged, they sieged Samaria and completely and utterly destroyed Northern Israel and took away all 10 Northern tribes into captivity. And the 10 Northern tribes of Israel were never heard from again. If you heard all the the random crazy legends of the lost tribes of Israel, that's referring to this event in history this moment in history where the king of Assyria led away the 10 tribes of northern Israel into captivity and they were never heard from again. They just disappear from the pages of history. And so in 721 then, that also started the time where Assyria reigned and ruled over Judah. And while they hadn't destroyed them yet, they ruled over them and demanded tribute, demanded taxation, demanded that they submit to the rule of Assyria. And this was a period where, where many of the, the kings of Judah, which, and, and just a, a bit of clarity, when, when after Solomon's reign of king of Israel and, and the, the tribes of Israel split and there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, oftentimes when you read in the Old Testament, the northern kingdoms are referred to as Israel while the southern, king, the southern tribes are referred to as Judah. And so the king of Judah then, many kings started turning from the Lord. And, and we're trying to placate and, and satisfy their, their ruling As- Assyrian armies by worshiping their gods and turning to their ways, until there was a king called Hezekiah. And he returned the nation of Israel to worshiping God. And he returned to them saying, we can have hope, we can trust God, God is going to deliver us, we don't have to give in to the Assyrian domination. And so he sought God and returned the nation of Israel to trust in God, And he told his people that we're no longer going to pay tribute. We're not going to submit to a foreign ruler. And so it was with that that he refused to pay and then entrusting the Lord, he said, we're going to depend on God, our Savior. And with that, the Assyrian army says, fine, you're done. And so they invade Judah. and, And they start taking town by town by town until they get to the city of Jerusalem. And in about 701... They siege Jerusalem. They completely surround Jerusalem with their army. And they send the king of Assyria sends out messengers to mock God, to mock the king of, of Judah. And we read about this in Second Kings 18, particularly in verse 32. And so they sent out messengers to mock Hezekiah, to mock God, and we read in, in verse 32. What they were saying, and they're speaking in Hebrew specifically, so all of the people on the on the on the city walls could understand what they were saying. They said, "Do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying the Lord will deliver us." Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? And then he goes on to say in verse thirty-five. Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? You see, the, the king of Assyria is mocking God. He's standing proud and arrogant saying, what God could deny me what I desire? And so Hezekiah runs into prayer, dropping on his knees, praying that the Lord would save his people from, Israel, from, from Assyria, praying that God would deliver them. And that night, after Hezekiah prayed, God came, and while the, the entire, the greatest army on the face of the planet was encamped surrounding Jerusalem, the angel of the Lord destroyed and killed 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrian army. And so the army of Assyria then limped back to Nineveh. History still, historians can't explain why Assyria did not destroy Judah. But the Bible tells us that God came and fought for his people and delivered them from the hand of the Assyrian king. But that's not all. We could hope that that was the end of the, of the nation of Assyria, but that's not all because less than 50 years later, they had regained their strength. They had become even greater and more powerful than they ever were before. And in 664 BC, having more than, than amassed, the greatest might that they had ever come before at the height of their power, they actually invade another superpower. They invade Egypt. And they go hundreds of miles all the way up the Nile to the, net, to the capital of Egypt of Thebes, which was considered the most impregnable, the most fortified, the strongest city on earth because it was surrounded by water. And the Assyrian army completely destroys and completely wipes out the city of Thebes, leading their people away in captivity and destruction. And so it's, it's within just a few years after the destruction of Thebes when Assyria is at its absolute pinnacle the apex of their power the greatest point of their might that the book of Nahum's written and destruction is promised to Nineveh that's that's how absurd these words are at the moment they are written the greatest power on earth is promised destruction that it's going to be gone And it's less than 40 years after Nahum written these, wrote these words in 612 that a coalition of the Babylonians and the Medes completely and utterly destroy Nineveh, wiping it off the map. So destroyed it that, that we can read that historians didn't even think Nineveh had ever existed. They thought this was a legend until about 150 years ago when they uncovered the ruins. Nineveh was never populated ever again. It was completely destroyed. And so I share all of this with you, all that history. You hist- I saw like pins feverishly writing down stuff for you history nerds. Other people, your eyes were rolling in the back of the head. But I, I share all of that with you to give you deeper context as to what was actually happening when Nahum wrote these words. What God is actually stepping into when he acts on behalf of his people And what the city of Nineveh was actually doing is they brought destruction on the known world. And so what we read when we see described here in chapter 2 and 3, realize that there are very, very different audiences reading this book. This book is written to two audiences. It's written to Judah and it's written to Nineveh. In fact, throughout this book, the pronouns of you change as to who God's talking to. And it can change with almost without you even noticing. In a moment, he'll say, you, speaking to Judah. And then in the very next verse, he'll say, you, speaking to Nineveh. And so there's these two audiences. There's the oppressor and the oppressed, the proud and the humble. There's Nineveh and there's Judah. And so when we read this, there's really two audiences here that really need to hear these words. There's those of you here that need to hear these words spoken like Nineveh heard them you are proud, you are boasting in your might, in your successes, and you need to hear these words like Nineveh heard these words, as a powerful warning calling you to repentance. And there's others here that need to hear these words like Judah, you've been oppressed, you're struggling, you're burdened, you're broken, and you need to hear these words as an amazing comfort because your God is with you and he will deliver you. And so that's what we're gonna be digging into. And we're gonna figure out how God's speaking to each of these people and how God can call the proud to be humbled, to return to him and to trust in his grace and to be brought low. And while those who are humbled can be spurred on to continue to trust and depend on their God. So first let's look at God's words to Nineveh in verse 1. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. This is God mocking Nineveh. This is God basically mocking the king who was so absurd to stand before and mock God, to stand before the gates of Jerusalem and mock the living God. God's returning the favor. It's like divine smack talk. (laughs) He's standing in front of the gate and he's saying, come on, get your buddies, get the soldiers out, dress for battle, put your big boy pants on. We're going to go. Put somebody on the watch, lift up the drawbridge, get all the weapons ready, call your buddies. He's calling them out, and in verse two, we hear why. He says, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. He's fighting on behalf of his people. And so God is doing what he always promised to do. He's doing what he said, that if you trust me, I will deliver you and he's delivering his people from destruction. And then we read from verse 3 through verse 7 some of the most intense language in all of Scripture describing what was actually coming upon Nineveh. And with shocking detail, it describes what precisely happened to destruction in Nineveh. Historians think that one of the ways the Babylonians and the Medes might have destroyed Nineveh was by diverting the river so that it washed through And flooded the city. And we read that when it says the river gate opened and the palace melts away. With shocking detail, Nahum's describing how Nineveh is going to be brought down. And all this builds up until verse eight, which really kind of culminates and describes the the reality of what, what occurs. When it says Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. So, we've all seen those America's Funniest Home videos where you got the really, really heavy set man leaning on the edge of the above ground pool, and you know what's coming. And in a moment, it just splits. And what was once like thousands upon thousands of gallons of water, and seconds later, is just nothing but wet ground. I mean, it's kind of funny to watch in that setting, but, but in real words, that's what Nahum is saying is happening to Nineveh, that it's like a pool that was broken. So this greatest city on earth with massive walls, the walls are torn down and the people just spill out, gone, run away, and there's nothing left. Nothing. We even get a hint of the language when it describes someone yelling out, halt, wait, stop, come back, come back and fight. But it says, no one turned around. The greatest city on the planet was just gone in a moment, never to be populated again. And so that's what we see Happened. And then in verse 10, this language then kind of turns from describing the battle to actually describing the aftermath. Desolate, desolation, and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all the loins, all faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb? Now you see, The lion was actually the symbol of Nineveh. They referred to their city as the lion's den because how they would work is that this massive city just existed off of plundering all of the people from the worlds that they ruled. The city of wealth, of wealth that was undescribable, of just complete opulence and and existence on, on on the backs of those that they ruled. How they would reign is they would just send out their army like a lion, like a pride of lions, to devour other nations and just bring back all of their wealth and all of their people for those that lived in Nineveh to just to devour. And so God, after this moment, is just saying, where'd the lion's den go? Where's the lion? Where's this threatening, fearsome city that destroyed and terrorized the world? Where did you go? And all of this com- culminates into verse, seven, into verse 13. And this is where, don't, don't, misle- don't be misled, because of all this terror we read, the most terrifying words in this whole book are written in verse 13, where we read, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. The most terrifying words that you can ever hear are the words, I am against you when spoken by the living God. And that's what he says to Nineveh. So you might say, why? How could God be against people? We're building upon the foundation that we kind of laid last week. The foundation of how God must be just if he's going to be worshiped. God must have wrath on sin if he's going to be anything resembling a good God. And so we see here what really we see described in James 4, 6 when we read that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God was against Nineveh because Nineveh was proud. God hates pride. Because simply put, pride is self-worship. It's mocking God. It's standing before God and declaring your sovereignty while at the same time declaring war on him. Pride is a, war, is a declaration of war on God. And God says, I oppose the proud. I am against Nineveh, this city that thought that they did all of these things by their own might. And so proud people like Nineveh never think that they could fall. Those of us in in here who are struggling with pride, which I venture to say is probably all of us, never think that we can fall. We think we're too big to fail. That it, and, and really, if you experience enough successes in a row, you start to believe your own hype. You start to believe that, that I'm too big to fail. We start to trust in our own knowledge, our own understanding, thinking that we can foresee all the danger ahead and we've made preparation before it, for it. We start to think that, that we're above the need of wise counsel. Above the need of having those close to us speak truth to us, Though we're above the need of having accountability, of having friends that, out of, our, out of their desire for our good, will speak truth to us and call us to repent. And when someone comes to us with a concern, our first thought is, "How dare you? Who are you to talk to me? I see all your sin. How dare you point out mine?" And so the heart of the proud is one where we trust in our own strength. We trust in our career, our position, and that our confidence is in what we boast in. Even though we've seen dozens before us fail and fall. Even though the nation of Assyria had seen all of these nations that they were destroying that were once the greatest on earth, They said, no, no one can ever make us fall. And so like that, the heart of the proud, while seeing many others completely come down and fail, think that they're above ever being in need. And so they trust in their own might, their own strength, their own ability to deliver themselves. And this is something that none of us is above. And we we have the opportunity here to learn from Nineveh so we don't have to share their fate. Recognize the grace in this because we can escape the destruction that Nineveh experienced. Because when we're proud, we're like the king of Assyria standing before Jerusalem and we're mocking God. We're saying, what God can deny me what I want? What God could deny me that promotion? What God could deny me that woman or that man? What God could deny me ever having to suffer the consequence of the life that I'm choosing and that I'm living? And so there are many here that would probably never say those words, but yet we're just like them. We're trusting in our own strength, our own money, our own career, our position in society. And what you need to hear is that God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. And that God might be saying to you this morning, listen, I am against you. When you trust in yourself and you run to your pride and your own strength, I am against you. And what you need to hear is a gracious call to repent to turn from trusting in your strength like the Ninevites and to trust in God. And you need to hear the words that James actually utters two verses later in verses 4-8 where he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This incredible gracious call that God has towards the proud is I'm against you, so quit fighting me and run to me. And we can unpack that a bit more in a moment. But let's first look at the other audience. Let's look at Judah. And so turn back actually just to the very end of chapter 1 and look at verses, chapter 1, verse 15. And here we're going to actually see another behold. So we just saw him say, behold, I am against you. Now we're going to see another behold with a very different message. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. You see, God, in just incredible gentleness and grace to the nation of Judah, is saying, you turn to me, you're humble. I'm speaking gentle words to you. I'm speaking words of peace and restoration. And, and this is a prophecy with a double fulfillment. And what I mean by that is it had a short-term fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment. Because in the short term, it's referring to the, whoever, the, 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 the delegation or the person who fled from, from Nineveh or saw their destruction and is coming over the mountains, over the hills, coming back to Jerusalem. And he's saying, he's proclaiming good news and peace. He's saying... Judah, we have peace. Our oppressor for the past 200 years is no more. He's gone. God's delivered us from the hand of the Assyrians. He's proclaiming good news that the nation of Judah never has to worry about Assyria coming through their land ever again because he has been cut off. That's the short-term fulfillment because we see that fulfilled just 40 years after Nahum wrote these words. The long-term fulfillment and the much more important fulfillment is that he's pointing us towards Christ. He's he's pointing us towards the one who would truly fulfill the vows of Judah. The one who would truly be a cause for celebration of fulfilling their feasts the one who is actually proclaiming the true good news, the true gospel of grace that was proclaiming peace, not just from one oppressor, but from every oppressor. He's pointing us towards Jesus. And that's what we're gonna seek and find our hope in. And so this is exactly what we came to last week. You remember when when we saw God's power and his wrath on sin with his grace and love and mercy for the sinner? That after hearing that literally everything that we could possibly turn to and run to in a day of trouble was gone and wiped out? Chapter one, we saw that the hills melted away. We can't run to the hills anymore. The ocean is dried up. We can't be like Jonah and flee from God's presence by getting on a ship. The mountains trembled, Everything was coming undone. Everything, the the wealth of our neighbors was wilting. Everything that we could seek to run to in the day of trouble, chapter one tells us, is gone. Chapter one of Nahum also told us that this is God's wrath for us. The wrath that we rightly deserve as rebels, pridefully declaring that we are our own gods. God's. And that there's nowhere that we can run to escape the judgment that we rightfully deserve. Chapter two then shows us what that looks like in actuality. It shows us through Nineveh what we deserve. That we can't trust in our strength, our power, our past victories, and our future plans. And it shows us that we must humble ourselves to do what? to run to God, our stronghold. Remember verse seven from chapter one? To run to God, who's our refuge and our stronghold. He tells us that there's nowhere else to go. It's all undone. And that our only hope is to run to find our hope in Christ because Christ bore the destruction of, that we deserve himself on our behalf. The destruction we read about in Nineveh that was used in, once again, in symbolic words is what Christ bore on our behalf, that we might be delivered from wrath and be secure in a stronghold. Look with me back again at at chapter one, verses six and seven. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble, he knows those who take refuge in him. And so again, we see a God who righteously and rightly hates sin But who righteously and mercifully loves sinners. A God who loves us so much that he will bring the sin that seeks to destroy us to an utter destruction, that it will no longer walk through our midst any longer because it's cut off. That's our future hope. God loves us that much to destroy sin completely, yet at the same time, he loves sinners so much that he calls them to find their refuge in nothing other than himself. I said it last week, the only refuge from the wrath of God is in the mercy of God. The only refuge from God is in God. And that's the hope that we want to and that we find in Christ Christ. And so what we need to cling to is the gospel. We need to recognize that like the king of Assyria, we rebelled and turned to sin. We were created to be humble, to praise and live for the glory of God. Yet like the king of Assyria, we decided to live for the glory of ourselves. And we rightfully deserve the destruction of a rebellious evil city. But God, the beauty of the gospel is in the but God came living the perfect, obedient, submissive, loving life in the man Jesus Christ on our behalf so that he could bear the destruction we deserved, so that all of God's wrath on every sin that any of you have ever committed was placed on the shoulders of Christ and he bore the wrath of God in our place so that by faith we could trust in him to receive the favor and the mercy and the shelter of God and eternally be delivered to find our identity and our hope in him. That's the good news of the gospel. The gospel that the book of Nahum proclaims And so our hope in the call is to the proud here is to be humble, to let this humble you. You need to listen to James' call to the proud to draw near to God so that he will draw near to you, to stop trying to escape the judgment of God or to stand against him and to run into his arms to draw near to him and to be embraced in love. And to find your shelter from the strong arm of his wrath in the strong arm of his his embrace. That's the call to the proud. To find your hope and your salvation in Christ and let him be your stronghold because your stronghold that you're trusting in is not gonna stand. None of you are greater than the city of Nineveh. And Nineveh was wiped out from history. None of you have a hope to stand. Your hope must be in Christ. So draw near to him. And the call to the humble, the application point to the humble here is to remain humble, to remain soft to seek and to cling and to remain in Christ and to be gracious to your enemies, to be gracious to your oppressors. Because here's the deal, and this is the big danger of those of you who've grown up in church and have heard this message always, and when I was sharing about the two audiences, immediately said, I'm in Christ, I'm in Judah, all of the good news is for me. Is that very quickly... When you are in Christ, you start to think that the grace you've been given is no longer favor that you don't deserve, but actually a wage that you've earned. You start to think that the blessing in your life isn't God's grace on you because what you actually deserved was destruction. You start to think that it's a wage paid to a righteous saint, You start to think that you've earned God's favor. And what happens then is you start to be embittered and judgmental towards the other sinners, those that you were once of. And so what you need to know is to know that God's wrath and vengeance, apart from Christ, was for you. Yet that in Christ you're receiving his wage, not your own. And you're receiving it in favor. And so those who have been humbled because you've been wronged and you've struggled and you're trusting God, the call is what you need to what you must do is you must be gracious and forgiving. Because really there's two options for those who have been humbled. You can either be among the most gracious and forgiving or you can be among the most bitter and judgmental. And, and I see this constantly with those who have been wronged. When in a conversation, they can, two types of people, the, the, the Puritans were fond of saying the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The same suffering that we can go through can bring about two different realities on the human heart. Some suffer much and their hearts are so softened that they weep and they pray for and they care for the weak. But not only that, but they actually care for the salvation of their oppressor and they seek to forgive and restore. But then there's another reality that often happens as well that those who have suffered much can become very, very bitter and ache for and desire to carry out vengeance. And so what you need to cling to is recognize that vengeance belongs to the Lord. There's two things that will transform how we, as people, respond to being wronged. And they're both in the gospel. Let's look into that. Turn with me real quick, we're almost done here, to Romans 12, And we're going to read verses 14 through 21. Romans 12, verses 14 through 21. And a bit of a preface before this. One of the the real oppositions towards the doctrine of the wrath of God is that people think that if God is like that, and if we believe that God's like that, then we are going to become a wrathful people. That we will become a people that desire to carry out vengeance on our wrong, on those who have done evil to us. And we're gonna read here that actually Paul shows us that the opposite is the reality. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, the call is to forgive the radical call to Judah and the radical call to us who have been wronged is to forgive of the likes that the world has never seen. To forgive, and why? Well, the first reason is to forgive because we have been forgiven much. To forgive because like a rebellious evil servant, God has forgiven us more than we can ever imagine. And because we are recipients upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, we have no foothold to stand and proclaim judgment on any, anyone else. And so we must forgive as we have been forgiven. So grace is the first motivation to forgive. But the surprise is actually God's wrath is the second motivation to forgive. We can forgive because vengeance is not up to us. We don't have it in ourselves or need to place it on our shoulders to set a wrong right. Does that mean we should not be a people that fight for justice for others? Absolutely not. We should be a people who seek to carry out and fight for the justice of the evil, and the, of, of the justice for the oppressed and the wronged. But for ourselves, Paul says that we are to forgive that we are forget to forgive because we know that God is just and we will not let any sin go unpunished because either the sinner will have to answer for it or Jesus already has. Do you follow that? We can have hope to forgive radically in grace and mercy because God will deal with every wrong and make it right. We can pour out grace because God is going to carry out his justice. We can be loving and overcome evil with good by pouring out grace on the unrighteous and calling them to draw near to God because he will draw near to them. And so the hope that we have in the gospel and that some of you today as we partake in communion, you need to hear the call to the proud and you need to draw near to God. You need to come find me or one of the other um, um, leaders and, and prayer servants here and you need to pray and you need to just say, I, I, I desire to draw near to God because I don't want him to be against me. And so come and as we do communion, let me urge you, if you're not trusting in Christ yet, to hold back from communion and come and pray. Pray with us to turn to God in repentance and to draw near to him. And others of you have been harboring bitterness and frustration and anger against people for far too long. And you need to forgive. You need to stop taking vengeance upon yourself and trust it to the Lord. And you need to offer the grace that you have been forgiven, trusting in a just God who will let no thing go uncovered and undealt with in the end. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your gospel, that this book that so radically proclaims your justice and your wrath on sin, Lord, that it just pours out grace upon grace, that we might by your revelation, by your loving grace, understand you more as you truly are. That we might be delivered from our own arrogance, from our own pride, and that our hearts might be softened to trust in you, to cling to you, to draw near to you, because you draw near to us, and you promise to give grace to the humble. And so, Lord, I just pray that this morning, we would be a humble people. Lord, that we would worship with more passion than we ever have before because we recognize that the good fortune we've been given is not a wage for our own righteousness, Lord, but it's the gracious offering of Jesus's righteousness on our behalf. So Lord, I ache that this gospel would mark us as a people that would transform us to be the most gracious, the most forgiving, the most loving, and the most radically humble people in this city. Save us, Lord, from our own bitterness and our own vengeance. Deliver us, Lord, from what hardens our heart, Lord, and instead let it melt and be softened that we might run to you in love and praise you for your wonder or grace. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.